The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 1. You can find it on page 1050 in the Pew Bible. Sin, faith, duty. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord. John. This is John's last joy before they go on summer holiday. So uh, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for John, for the preparation that he's put into this morning. Lord, be with him as he speaks to us your word. And Lord, be with us and open our hearts, our ears, our minds, and our spirits to what it is you want to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. It is my joy, and to be fair, I've been on holiday for a few weeks. I'm sorry about that. For those of you who've been working hard in the hot sun, uh, I've been flopping around at home. Um, I get a bit weird in the summer holidays, uh, I should warn you. Um, I'm so used to being busy at school. There's something strange about being a teacher. I'm not complaining about holidays at all, uh, but it is weird where you go from fully on to fully off and your character shifts, it's slightly strange, and you almost have to rediscover your identity in those first few weeks of the summer. Um, So of course, I'm absolutely grateful um, to have the holidays, but um, it means for a few weeks that I've had unstructured days, and I'm used to a timetable. My days are so highly structured and busy, so to suddenly have time is a little bit strange. Um, And I guess the primary thing that I've been doing has been um, primary caregiver to my children, Ben, who you saw earlier, um, is, is, is a wonderful but very interesting guy, and um, 
quite uh, demanding in lots of really good ways. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful um, person, actually. And um, it's funny, what you know he said he found forgiveness easy. That's actually true. That's not just him. That's actually part of his character. It's a blessing that he has. He, he does not hold a grudge, my son, and I admire him greatly for it. And I thank him greatly for it because in my attempts to be full-time dad for the last few weeks, uh, there have been some difficult moments, I'll be honest. There have been times when I've just got things wrong. And, um, you know, Ben isn't um, a, a naughty boy by any stretch of the imagination, but he's, he's intense. You know, he's always wanting to communicate and always wanting to tell you things. And there was a time last week where I was trying to get them ready to go to the swimming pool, and we've had a bit of a lazy morning and, you know, just trying to gather it all up uh, before we leave the door. And he was just, just not doing anything wrong, just, just go, 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 going, going, just being a little bit irritating, being a child. <laughs> and I was being a grumpy adult and um, trying to, you know, make sure that we had the goggles and, you know, that we had all the things. Um, and I said, Ben, and I snapped at him. I just said, Ben, could you just stop being an idiot just for two seconds? And I cut him deep. I could see that I hurt him because he's a very sensitive boy and it was the wrong thing to say. And I was, it was just me being grumpy. And I, the moment I said it, I wanted to take it back and it was too late. And I could see that it wounded him. I could see that it wounded him. And he looked upset, um, as you would be if your dad called you an idiot. And um, I just had to walk away for a moment because the moment I'd said it, I thought, oh gosh, I want to take that back straight away and I can't, it's out there now. Um, and I, I said sorry to him um, a couple of minutes later, once I'd kind of had the moment to calm down. And he was like, okay, you know, and then we just carried on. And, um, but it, oh gosh, it weighed on me. It weighed on me. And we got to the swimming pool and I was in the changing rooms and we were getting changed and he was just carrying on like nothing had happened, but it was still really heavy on my heart. Like, oh, you know, I just felt awful. I just felt so bad. And so I had to, for myself, stop and just look at him and said, I'm so, so sorry that I said that to you earlier. And he said, Dad, I forgive you. It's okay. <sighs> you all know that feeling? There's nothing more wonderful than to be forgiven by your child, I think. And it's just, oh, the release, the release of the burden. And it, I think he'd forgiven me 10 minutes before, actually, but it was still weighing, I needed to say sorry again in a more kind of structured way, and he needed to forgive me. And those words, I forgive you, were so releasing that I just felt restored. And then we had fun in the pool, and I felt like a proper dad again. And that was an important part of my week. And so it's thanks to Ben, bless him, um, that we're focusing so much on forgiveness <laughs> this morning. Um, obviously, it's in the passage. Um, but in preparing this passage, it's a quite a tricky one. You get that from the subtitle, don't you? Sin, faith, and duty. Gosh, there's three pretty big topics crammed into quite a small space. And they seem to be slightly connected, but also slightly different teachings, little micro-teachings that Jesus gives. Um, the first one is a warning for me right now and for anyone else who ever preaches or leads in the church to make sure that we don't cause other people to stumble. And if we do so, gosh, that's a bad thing to do. Um, and then the bit that really caught my eye was the second section when it's talking about how much we should forgive. Um, and then going on to talk about faith and duty as well. And that's really what caught my eye. So I want to talk this morning about what it means to be a people um, who are concerned with radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Because I believe that as the church, as Christians, we're called to be people who forgive in a radical way. In a way that will change society. In a way that will change one another and ourselves. 
okay? Because I believe Christians are called to be forgiving. And we shouldn't be surprised that we are because we know, don't we, from Scriptures, that our God is a forgiving God. We agree? It's actually just so part of His character that He's a forgiving God. And I think we're so used to the Christian God being described as a forgiving God, that we just kind of take that for granted. But when you pause for a moment and think about some of the other kind of ancient gods that you see in kind of mythology and other, other texts, you very rarely find gods who are by nature forgiving. Have you, have you considered that? One of my favorite books that's ever been written um, is The Odyssey by Homer. Um, and uh, that's a story, as I'm sure you know, about a, a hero called Odysseus who's trying to find his way home. And um, one of the key ideas in that story is that the god Poseidon, who's kind of the water god, the god Poseidon is very cross with Odysseus and actually is trying to get vengeance on Odysseus pretty much the whole way through the story. So Poseidon is kind of chasing Odysseus through the world causing storms and shipwrecks and things to happen because he wants vengeance. He wants to put it right because he feels that Odysseus has, has wounded him in some way. And I think in, in lots of ancient literature, the idea that God might be vengeful or might want to exact retribution when things have gone wrong in the world is fairly typical of the gods that we see. Our God, the Judeo-Christian God, the one God, the only one that's real, is characterized by his forgiveness which is a fantastic and wonderful thing. To be the God who created the universe and yet to forgive is a wonderful thing. How do I know he's characterized by his forgiveness? Well, if you just, even just a quick spread through the, the, the Old Testament shows us that the Old Testament God, the same God, by the way, is a forgiving God. And you often hear that suggested, don't you, that somehow there's a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. That somehow the Old Testament God is kind of the vengeful one and the New Testament God is the forgiving one. It's just not true. One of my favorite pieces of scripture is when Moses goes up to get the the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. He goes up the mountain, and you remember the story, of course, and God's presence comes past, and he has to hide himself in the the nook of the rock, and he meets with God on the mountain. And what does the Lord say about himself? This is Exodus 34. He says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming about himself, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's how God describes himself in Exodus. That's our God, yes? That's our God. Slow to anger, rich in love, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You remember the story of Jonah? Of course. Jonah and the big fish. Everyone remembers the big fish bit okay, and uh, gets kind of spat out on land. Um, Do you remember that after Jonah's spat out on land, he gets really cross with God. He's been told to go to Nineveh, which is kind of a wicked place, to preach forgiveness. And the reason why he runs away is because he really, really doesn't want to, because he doesn't think that the Ninevites deserve that message. They don't deserve forgiveness. Why on earth, God, would you want to forgive those people? So that's why he runs in the opposite direction. But you know the story with the fish. But this is what happens later. Jonah chapter 4 says this, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, that God would want to forgive these people. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. (laughs) Jonah, this is. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You recognize that phrase? 
a God who relents from sending calamity. In Jonah, God is so gracious and kind that it irritates Jonah no end. Why on earth would you forgive those guys? They suck. Like, I don't want them in good relationship with you, God. I resent the idea that you might forgive those people. They're horrible. I don't like you very much, God, right now because you forgive people that I don't like. Wow. I'm sure that we can't relate to that in any way. (laughs) You know, God is a forgiving God, and sometimes he's so forgiving, it's actually irritating because we ourselves, as an inbuilt sense of kind of justice about get people getting what they deserve. It's kind of part of our flawed humanity, actually, that we have a sense that their things should be equal in some way. But forgiveness isn't an equal thing. It's unequal. Yes? It's, it's not just in the sense of scales that finally balance, eye for an eye. It's not like that. Forgiveness is a tipping of the scales in a different direction. It means people who don't deserve forgiveness get forgiveness. Even people who we might think really don't deserve forgiveness should have forgiveness, should be forgiven by God and by you and me as well. And that's why it's radical. That's why it's radical. In Psalm 103, it says, and we sang it, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Radical forgiveness, complete distancing, couldn't be further apart. What I deserve and what I get could not be more different. That is radical, my friends. That is radical. And you know what? It should feel unnatural to us because as flawed human beings, that doesn't seem right. It seems too generous, too kind. Seems too much. But that's the beauty of our God. And thank goodness for you and for me too. You know, there's a, there's a festival in, in a Jewish tradition called Yom Kippur. And that it ha- finds its root, actually, in the Moses passage. Um, and in that, in that festival, the whole principle of the thing is that you forgive one another. So actually, Jesus is talking to people who are familiar with the idea of a forgiving God. So the Judeo-Christian God is a forgiving God, and that's certainly nothing new to Jesus' audience here. Now, obviously, if we look at Christ now, we see that he model- models radical forgiveness as well. It's something that you mentioned, that on the cross, on the cross, You know, as those nails were being driven into his hands, he cries out, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. That he forgives in the moment. He didn't need to have time to reflect on that. He was forgiving in the moment of agony. And I don't know about you, but there is an instinctive part of me that if someone hurts me, my my first thought is a kind of gritting of the teeth. Is that, that, that's not just me, right? Is that, that's just a human thing, isn't it? You know, there is an instinctive part of us as human beings to retribution straight away. Yeah? You you pinch me, I'll pinch you back. That is our reaction, a recoil type thing. That's the way uh, our human hearts work. Christ's reaction, as nails have been driven into his hands, was to forgive the people who were doing it. That, my friends, is radical. Isn't it? That is incredible. That is incredible. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Also in the Lord's Prayer, it's central, isn't it? It's central. How do we do the your kingdom come bit? How do we achieve that? Well, forgive us our sins, the next bit, as we forgive those who sin against us. Because that's the model that's being suggested. How do we change the world, friends? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's how we change the world. 
That's how the kingdom is brought in. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Okay? And we know, don't we, that the doctrine of forgiveness is built into the Christian message. We know, don't we, that the central message of the gospel, or one of them, is that Christ has made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. We call it atonement, that he has atoned, he's paid the price for our wrongdoings so that we can receive forgiveness from God. And in Acts chapter 10, it says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So forgiveness is built into the Christian faith. It's part of God's character. It's certainly part of Jesus' character. And it's part of the gospel that we preach, that forgiveness is available to all. It's available to you this morning and to me. And that is wonderful. We can all, and we've prayed a, a prayer of repentance, which was wonderful. But it's just confessing those things that we've got wrong so that we can find a place of reconciliation with God. And that's fantastic. So, the question now is, right, what does that mean for how, how we're supposed to live? Okay? Me and you, day to day, what does this mean for us? If our God is a forgiving God, if Jesus modeled radical forgiveness, if we believe that our sins have been forgiven, what does that mean for how we now behave in our day-to-day -day lives? That is what this passage is about. That is what this passage is about. It's practical stuff. And in that sense, it's really useful. You know, Jesus is giving practical teachings. He's saying to his disciples, do you know what? Don't lead anyone astray. Be careful. Watch yourselves. Don't lead anyone astray. Is the first thing he says. That's a really useful and a separate message, but a, a, a really useful um, tip. But there are just some practical things that I want to pull out of this passage that might be helpful for us today, okay? So this is how we should practice as Christians in a forgiving, in a radically forgiving way. The first thing I want us all to notice, because it's encouraging, in verse 1 of this passage, I know it's talking about people stumbling in false teaching, but it says, things that cause people to stumble, chapter 17, verse 1, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. What that means is that we are going to get stuff wrong. <laughs> we are going to get stuff wrong. We're going to do things, we're going to experience things that are going to cause us to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt one another. If we're serious about doing life together, which is that kind of quite modern Christian phrase, and I, I hope we are serious about doing life together in this church, and you know, we've been talking about small groups, let's do life together. That sounds great. The more time we spend together, the more likely is we're going to hurt one another. There's a truth in that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't spend time together. Let's just accept that because we're human, we are going to upset one another, aren't we? <laughs> just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're not going to cause one another to stumble and make mistakes ourselves. We are going to hurt one another, okay? And I don't know, there might be someone in this room who's hurt you at some point, or you might be about to hurt somebody this week. That's going to happen. It's inevitable. If we're not hurting one another, I would suggest, we're probably not spending enough time together or not being real enough with one another because we're fundamentally kind of selfish people and, you know, I know we're nice people in here and et cetera, et cetera. But if we're really doing life together, we're going to, you know, I love my son hugely. I believe I'm a nice person, but I hurt him this week. That's because I'm human. It's okay. You know, clearly I've got over it. Um... I'm human. And because I, you know, spend time with him and I've spent more time with him in the last few weeks than I usually do, it's inevitable that I'm going to wound my children at some point and get it wrong because that's what being a parent is about. And you know what? They're going to bother me as well at times. 
We're going to hurt one another. It's inevitable. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Okay? In Romans 3, there's a great truth about this. It's one of the great scriptures, isn't it? I mean, Romans generally, but Romans 3. All have sinned, he says, Paul, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So the first idea here is that to be a good forgiver, I think we need to recognize that at some point you're going to need forgiveness too. It's to be humble. We're all going to make mistakes. I know that I do, and I'm sure that you do as well. We're going to get it wrong, so let's not be self-righteous or superior or think that we've got it cracked. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to hurt one another. And that's part of why we need a cycle of forgiveness. The second idea which for me probably is the one that spoke to me the most in my preparation, is this. Forgiveness is not weak. Forgiveness is not weak. There is a myth in the world that suggests to you and I that forgiveness is a weakness, that somehow that the world is about survival of the fittest, and that you've got to be strong, and the best rise to the top, and you know, why would you show forgiveness? Why would you because when you've, when you've got something over on someone, you've got power over them, haven't you? Yes? You know what I'm talking about here. You know, if, if, I, if I upset you, if I hurt you, you've got power over me. If I care about our relationship, in that moment, you have the upper hand. You've got power. Yeah? Because I want to be in good relationship with you, and I've hurt you, which means you have an advantage over me. Now, how you choose to exercise that power is the point. And this is where it's radical because the Christian would say, I'm just going to give that right back. I'm just going to release it. I don't want that power over you. But there is an instinctive humanness in in us, isn't there, to kind of make the most of it. Make them sweat a little bit, you know? See if I can get them, you know, to do me a few favors. Take advantage of the situation in some way. Or just feel superior for a while before, oh, of course I'm going to forgive you, but I'm just going to go away and think about it a little bit, you know, first, and let it, ooh, just let it, just enjoy that power a little bit, and I know you're kind of suffering, but that's kind of part of the deal, because you've hurt me, I'm going to make sure you feel that a little bit before. Forgiveness isn't weak, it's strong, it's laying down the power we have over one another. I want to notice in this passage, he's not calling us to be doormats, you know, he says that we should rebuke each other, by the way, if we get it wrong, It's not a kind of silent suffering, they've hurt me, but I'm not going to let them know. We should tackle it. It's not weak. It's strong. It's saying, you've hurt me, but I want you to know that I forgive you. And that's cool. That's going to help us to live together in a really, really great way, (laughs) and we'll be so much happier. You know, Psalm 130 says this, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? You You know that scripture? Do you know what it says next? thinking about strength. It says, but with you there is forgiveness. Is that a weak thing? So that we can, with reverence, serve you. Because God is a forgiving God, it means we can get close. And that gives him all the more power and all the more reason for our worship. Forgiveness is strong. It's strong. It's so strong. Which is why the apostles say, increase our faith on line five. Because Jesus says, how much should you forgive? Seven times in a day. That's kind of like an idiom for saying, as much as is required. 
Now, I don't know whether you've rehearsed this idea. It's not meant to be taken literally, but let's say someone did actually upset you seven times in a single day. Maybe someone you work with has actually done that recently. They just keep doing it. They're just one of those characters, you know, that are just really difficult to get along with, and they keep upsetting you, keep hurting your feelings. You know, a normal, non-radical, normal human response is to allow that to build into kind of a torrent of kind of resentment and anger, keeping it down and keeping it down, and then, you know, you get that kind of moment. Right, well, as Christians, we're called to just keep forgiving. Keep no record of wrongs. Keep forgiving. Seven times in a day. That is incredibly difficult, <laughs> which is why the disciples say, ah, increase our faith. How are we supposed to do that? Because at least they recognize that that's not possible in our own strength. It's just not. At some point, you're just going to explode if someone hurts you that much over and over again. But they say, increase our faith. But do you know what the good news is? Jesus says, do you know what? You don't need this kind of mighty, mighty faith to forgive someone. You need faith that's the size of a mustard seed. I read something recently that really spoke to me. It said, you don't need great faith. You need small faith in a great God. And I found that encouraging. Because <laughs> it's not our faith that does the operating you know, God's capacity is infinite. The Holy Spirit's ability to work in our lives is infinite. We don't need to generate it by having mega faith. Just a small amount of faith is enough because God is so great. Even just a small amount of faith in what he can do in our lives will do radical things. And can I suggest to you, friends, that something radical that we can do in this society is just to forgive people who don't deserve it and then to forgive and then to forgive and to keep no record of wrongs. That's actually quite a radical thing. I'm not talking about, you know, going out and performing miracles, although that would be great too. I'm talking about mustard seed type gestures, which is I'm just going to forgive you if you wrong me. That makes us countercultural. That makes us more like God than like our flawed humanity, more like Jesus. It seems simple, doesn't it? It's such a simple message this morning. <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy, which is why it requires faith. Because it's uh, your natural human instinct, like mine, is going to be to recoil, to hold over, to have power over, to wound in return, to retribution, retribute. Is that the right word? Don't know, actually. That is our natural human instinct, isn't it? Which is why all in the mythology, all the gods are characterized like us, rather than our story, which is the truth, where it's the other way around. We're more like God. We've been made in the image of God, and God is a forgiving God. Okay? And it keeps no record of wrongs. Okay. So, we need to forgive one another. Why is all this important? Well, if we practice radical forgiveness, people will be helped to find Christ. There's a first point for you. Why should we do this? People will be drawn to that. How are they ever going to understand the forgiveness of God in their lives if they don't receive a forgi forgiveness from a Christian? Do you know what I mean? We're the first step, aren't we? When we talk about how do we witness, how do we get bring people in, well, the first thing is to forgive people. How, how come you're forgiving me? I, I totally hurt you. Why are you forgiving me? Well, that's because I believe that's what Jesus tells me to do. Ah, so that's what it looks like. Okay, I understand what forgiveness is now. I can now process the abstract idea that God has forgiven my sins because I've seen it from a fellow human being. That's one of the ways that we witness. We forgive. We be these radical forgivers. If we practice radical forgiveness, our homes... And our churches and our workplaces will be more peaceful places. There will be less anger, less division, less resentment. It will make this place 
and our homes and our workplaces better if we're radical forgivers of one another. Third idea, if we practice radical forgiveness, we will allow ourselves to heal and move on after we've been hurt. If you hold on to the pain, it starts to hurt you from the inside out. If we practice radical forgiveness, we will point others in God's direction. We will reflect his attitude. This idea that we are reflections of the Father, that's what we're called to be as a church. And one of the ways we should do that is to be forgiving, to be merciful. If we practice radical forgiveness, we can break cycles of hatred and bring his kingdom into the world. Because if no one forgives, you know, you just get a negative spiral. And how often do we see that in the world? negative spiral. A lot of our politics at the moment, I'm not going to get too political, but a lot of our politics is about distrust. It's about lacking in forgiveness. It's about people having power over rather than releasing. It's weak, but it's a negative spiral. Okay? Christians, the church, we're called to break that through forgiveness. I'm going to read you a little bit of Shakespeare. Is that okay? One of my favorite plays, Merchant of Venice. Uh, I don't know if you know The Merchant of Venice at all. Um, I, I, as you know, I'm a literature teacher. Well, some of you probably know that. And I've been teaching The Merchant of Venice to my GCC class this year. And there is a, there's a character in that story called Portia. Uh, Portia is a woman who um, uh, is a Christian. And um, in, in that story, uh, The Merchant of Venice, one of the characters is called Shylock, who's a Jew. And there are divisions between Jews and Christians. And Right at the end of the play, Shylock has power over another character. Um, he's th- there's, they've signed a, a debt agreement where if the Christian character doesn't pay him back, he can ha- take a pound of his flesh. You've probably heard that phrase, haven't you? A pound of flesh. I know lots of you will know the play. Shylock has power over, and he's determined to take it. He's determined he's going to I'm going to have my vengeance over this Christian who's harmed me. It's a story about lacking forgiveness, actually, The Merchant of Venice. It's a great story. <laughs> Portia who's not supposed to be there. She's disguised as a man, and she speaks some truth into their very masculine world. Um, and I would suggest that it's a quality uh, that, I don't know whether I should suggest this, I think often women have more than men. Mercy and forgiveness, naturally. I think men are a bit, a bit stag about things. Um, and, and you get that in this play. This is what she says. It's one of the famous uh, speeches. Shakespeare nails it, by the way. Listen to this. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. That's us. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. It's mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attributes, awe, and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, 
the strict court of Venice must need give sentence against the merchant there. We do pray for mercy from God, don't we? We pray for forgiveness. We did it this morning. What does that mean? That same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy to one another. Shakespeare absolutely nails it. <laughs> we should be surprised. Absolutely nails it. What's so, sorry, what's so sad about this play, by the way, is that um, it all breaks down. So there's this moment of light in the darkness in the play, and what happens is that Shylock doesn't show mercy, doesn't forgive, okay? And then by a trick of the law, he ends up on the, the weaker side of the argument, and then the Christians have got an opportunity to show mercy to him, and they don't. And that's why it's a problematic play, because actually what Shakespeare presents to us is a society that is broken, that doesn't trust one another, that doesn't render mercy to one another. And the moment that any of the characters have power over, they take advantage of it, and they don't render mercy. And this soliloquy kind of sits, it's not soliloquy, it it sits in the play as a shaft of light, but then Shakespeare, because he's a brilliant dramatist, then shows us actually what tends to happen. And if you roll the the story through, the Christians don't show mercy. And you're left with this kind of bitter aftertaste at the end of the play, saying, gosh, no one showed mercy there, and look what happened. The whole of society just fell apart, and everybody lost. Everybody lost. Nobody's happy at the end of the play. There's a lot of truth in that play, by the way. A lot of truth that we should show mercy to one another. I'd like to read you a story um, written by um, Corey Ten Boom. And she's probably somebody that you've heard of. Um, if not, um, Corrie ten Boom, very famous Christian. Uh, she was Dutch. Um, she was in a concentration camp in um, Nazi Germany, Ravensbrück. And she was there with her sister, Betsy. Um, her sister, Betsy, um, died while she was in the concentration camp. Corrie um, was arrested because they were hiding uh, Jews. Um, and um, her and her family were arrested. Corey actually survived the concentration camp and went on to establish a home for people recovering from the Holocaust. Um, incredible Christian, and I'm sure some of you have read this story before, heard it before, but it is just such a wonderfully powerful story about the nature of Christian forgiveness. Because I don't have anything to give, other than my little story about Ben. I don't have anything to give in terms of, let me tell you about a time when I did radical forgiveness. I'm not sure that I've been called to that yet, it will happen, because we're told in the scriptures these things happen, but I've never been wounded to this extent, and hopefully never will. But here's somebody who's been wounded deeper than probably any of us. Let me just read you this story, because it's, it's remarkable. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform, 
and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it only, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corrie ten Boom is a fantastic model of a Christian who forgives radically. And it's people like her that can heal society. That's who Jesus was as well. <laughs> people who forgave those who are unworthy of being forgiven. And that is what we're called to be as well. I want you to notice the key idea 
is that she had a mustard seed amount of faith. You supply the feeling, she said. Can't do it on my own. Small request, God, help me here, because I can't do this without you. A mustard seed. And can I suggest to you that that mustard seed amount of faith can make all the difference in the world, actually. Can make all the difference. And let's just start there. And we think worry a lot about witnessing and healing and miracles. Let's just forgive one another. And believe it or not, that will make a huge difference in our lives, in this church, in our homes, and in our world. And that's what I believe we're called to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you that your nature is to forgive, to be kind. We thank you that you are a father. We thank you that you, you came down to earth and you modeled for us how to forgive. And I thank you, Lord, that you call us to be a forgiving people. And we just pray, Lord, this morning just for a mustard seed-sized amount of faith to help us to those who've hurt us, even if they hurt us over and over again. Help us to be your people in this world and to heal some of those wounds in our society. And Lord, if there's just anybody on our hearts now that we haven't forgiven or we think we might need to forgive or perhaps we might need to say sorry to, Lord, just place that person on our hearts and we ask for a mustard seed-sized portion of grace and faith to help us to forgive that person. Amen.